1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. It's back-to-school time. Here it is, September. And we're all hard at it. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm here in New York City. We're joined in Washington, D.C. by Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing today, Corey?
0: I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David.
1: Excellent. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. How are you today, Rosa?
2: I'm very well. Thank you, David.
1: And Edward Luce of the Financial Times. How
3: are you today, Ed? I'm both exceedingly and very well.
1: Well, that's because of British domination of world sports continuing as always, or for a moment.
3: For the first time since 1977, a British woman has won the U.S. Open, so, and I was nine years old then. So,
1: And it was
0: an entirely a Commonwealth final, which had to be nice too, right?
3: No, the Philippines is not part of the Commonwealth. Excuse me, she's from Canada. I know, but we're, we're mixing in all uh, the, the origins of each of the players.
1: Careful, careful. You're starting to sound like Piers Morgan just a little bit.
3: Um, <laughs> I was exceedingly very well until you uttered the words <laughs> Piers Morgan. And I'm in a foul mood.
1: All right. Well, before we get to the serious stuff, I'd like you to explain one thing to me, Ed. Why is it that when British sports teams are, you know, the fans are trying to egg them on, they sing Sweet Caroline, a song by Neil Diamond.
3: It's a very recent theft from American baseball that I think began with the Euro Cup this summer. And then it suddenly became mandatory for all sports, including tennis and cricket. It's weird how it suddenly took hold. But, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery.
1: Well, I, I found it very moving as she sang along with them. It was. The whole thing, the whole time. Rosa, you watched every minute of it, right? I did
2: not. I did not. But I I saw the headlines, and that's very much like watching it. In fact, it's almost exactly like being there.
1: It is exactly. Just reading Twitter is like having a light. (laughs) This afternoon, the Secretary of State of the United States is appearing before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he is going to say that, the US did its best, that we started moving the special visas in May, that we accelerated the process, that we got up to 1,000 a week, that we got 124,000 people out, that it was good to get out of this war. Do you think his talking about all this stuff will make much of a difference? Or do you think perhaps that Americans have moved on to the next story already, Corey?
0: So the American public is notoriously fickle, especially on the enduring attention to foreign policy matters. So it wouldn't surprise me if the public has already moved on. But we actually elect members of Congress to provide oversight of executive actions. So I'm very much in favor of the Senate and the House, dragging appointed officials back in front to explain them because the president has actually said a lot of things that are not true, not helpful to American foreign policy, and it's Congress's job to drive the cost up of those things. So I'm glad the hearings are taking place. I think it will help with accountability for some of President Biden and his administration's choices on Afghanistan. I only hope that the Congress can Restrain itself to the serious issues at hand and not turn this into a political firefight like the Benghazi hearings, which actually didn't advance American foreign policy or national security. Um, And there are important issues that we should be providing oversight and correction on President Biden's policies on Afghanistan and their execution.
1: Rosa Brooks.
2: Well, I think, first of all, the American public probably has already moved on. We've got like a collectively a three and a half second attention span. So it's all good. But that being said, I, I, I think, as Corey says, it, the fact that the American public may not care about this come the next midterm election and certainly not come the next presidential election is not a reason for Congress not to care about it. As we know, Congress's record of caring about such things in a constructive fashion, as opposed to a grandstanding fashion, is not so great. Um, so I don't particularly have a lot of hope that they will do anything useful. I think that we will see a lot of bipartisan scolding going on. And, you know, some of that scolding is merited. Some of it is not or will not be. But we're going to mostly see a a piece of theater that is intended for the constituents and to the extent that you know the two and a half constituents who have attention spans of more than three and a half seconds in their home districts, probably rather than anything particularly constructive. That would be my prediction.
1: Yes. By the way, everybody in the audience will know whether you're right or not, because they'll probably listen to this after all this happens.
2: And they are the
0: constituents who have more than a three and a half minute attention span for these
1: yes, days. no deep state radio nerds have twice the attention span of average Americans. Seven seconds or minutes. Ed, what is your view? Will this make a difference or no?
3: I uh, but I hope that Corey's right in her sort of noble sort of hope that this will be an oversight hearing, but I suspect she's more correct in, in warning it'll be Benghazi-fied by the Republicans and that there will be no sense of irony there in the critiques they make of Lincoln and the, the administration. This is a fairly narrowly defined oversight. It's about the, the nature of the withdrawal. Are they going to get into whether the intelligence estimates were misleading? Are they going to get into whether the Pentagon interpreted too literally its um, remit to get out with minimum casualties and leave Bagram in the middle of the night, etc. and a lot of equipment lying around for, for the Taliban to pick up? I expect that will be part of the remit. I don't think there's going to be a, a sort of broader or intelligible foreign policy debate about this. And I would agree with everybody that the impact domestically is going to be minimal. It is a little bit troubling to me to see that Blinken is being targeted to resign. And there's some fake news stories now being sort of uh, circulated in One American Network type circles about Blinken that, that show that you know, that they're out for his blood. What are those stories? Oh, well, there's one. Um,
0: oh, I don't think we should give them any airtime. No. Oh,
3: are they? I
1: mean, well, I mean, what is the nature of the stories? Since I obviously am listening to the wrong stuff, then I don't know what this is.
3: Well, there's one that's been put out by Jack Possibiec this morning. Um, yeah, so that, it's that kind of circle. So you, you don't need to hear me flesh it out. And it's not a salacious one. The point is, the guns are out for him. I doubt these hearings will um, will draw blood. And I hope they're sort of on the, the more noble end that, that Corey was, was outlining.
0: So the first heads under consideration for the chopping block were the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defenses before it occurred to anybody that maybe the people who had advocated a different course of action ought not to be the ones penalized for the president having adopted the course of action that he did. But I can't imagine circumstances in which President Biden would kick Tony Blinken overboard. He's just too central to how Biden thinks about the world and too long and too trusted and aid.
1: Well, there's also possibly the counter argument that Tony Blinken did a pretty good job.
2: Yeah, no, I I was I was I was going to say, number one, I think of all the people whose fault this could possibly be, Tony Blinken is relatively low on that list. You know, I think to the extent that there is any blame to go around, it's primarily, I think, the White House and the intelligence community. I mean, the military in a sort of longer term, deeper sense for having insisted stoutly for 20 years, that six months more would make all the difference, perhaps. But that's that's not really the immediate issue. Uh, with withdrawal, but but I also I, I also think that Tony Blinken has a lot of respect on both sides of the aisle, and I think most serious Republicans would recognize that they're not going to get anybody they like better than Tony Blinken. Why would they bother? Why would they bother to topple Tony Blinken? They want to make disapproving, angry noises, and today he's going to be the person who has to sit there and look polite and interested and attentive while they do that. But I don't think he's in any actual danger, nor should he be.
1: Nor should he be. May be open to all sorts of criticism, but uh, you know, I think all in all, they've no record here is entirely good or entirely bad. I, you know, some of us may interpret it as net positive, some net negative, but it's a mixed bag. But Ed, you know, you were you were talking about the hearing and the the remit here being fairly small. I'm not going to beat this dead horse for more than five more minutes. But shouldn't we really be looking at why we were there for 20 years and maybe? manifold giant mistakes rather than focusing on the last couple of weeks of it all?
3: Yeah, and um, we should be looking at the whole project of nation building. I mean, it's been a sort of strangely polarized debate that's been very inward-looking and pays very little attention to the foreign policy implications of this. But you know, if you're going to analyze the Biden exit, the decision to uphold a deal, a very shabby deal that Trump negotiated with the Taliban, which cut the legs from the Afghan army and basically premeditated their defection to various Taliban affiliated groups. If you're going to look at that, then I think going back to Biden's argument in 2009, when Obama was about to embark on this very, very ill-advised surge, urged on by the Pentagon of 100,000 people for a couple of years, to complete nation building you know, on an impossible timetable and probably not possible on any timetable, then what Biden was arguing for then was a counter-terrorism force retaining a, a garrison or two counter-terrorism of a few thousand people, which is what he had. So that's, that's my sort of puzzle, the way he did this and why he did this. It's not just the execution, it is the decision. But for sure, David, I agree, this has been a gargantuan failure. The idea of nation building was preposterous. And uh, an inquiry like this should take in all of that. I, I fully agree.
1: Yeah, no. And if there's one lesson, it's that we should all suppress the urge to surge.
0: I, needless to say, <laughs> I disagree with that. Um,
1: <laughs> I know. And... I knew you would. I had to just say the words urge to surge. I'm really sorry, but go ahead. Go, go.
0: <laughs> I agree with Ed's point that the for me, the central mystery is why President Biden, uh, I've never heard it said quite the way Ed just said it, which is the policy Biden advocated for in 2009 is the policy he overturned in 2021.
1: Well, there is the possibility that it was 2021. I mean, it was 12 years later, right?
0: That's true. And yet a lot of the claims the Biden administration is making, like, for example, that effective counterterrorism strikes can be done from over the horizon, I think are already proving problematic. And so I do think oversight over the entirety of it, and my objection specifically to the we should never support surges, is that it's certainly true that Afghanistan, that the American involvement in Afghanistan is a military failure, but it is also a civilian failure in that there was supposed to be a civilian surge that went alongside that military surge that never occurs. And terrorism is principally a problem of governance, not a military problem. And underinvesting in the governance piece of this. The decision in 2012 not to fight against corruption, like Sarah Chase's work on this, I think merits consideration as well.
1: Definitely does. And I strongly recommend that those of you who have not read Sarah Chase's work should read Sarah Chase's work. Although, you know, it does raise a bigger question here. I, I don't mean to accidentally stumble onto bigger questions, Rosa, when we could be, you know, just dealing with the headlines and political reactions. But, you know, the bigger question here is, Was there a possible civilian surge that might work in a place like this? And is there a corollary to the Powell Doctrine that says not only, you know, do you go in with force and have an exit and so on and so forth and have a clearly defined mission, that you need to have some kind of clear civilian outcome and fund that sufficiently in order to undertake these other kinds of things does that make sense to you and
2: yes and no i mean i think as as with everything right it depends what you're trying to do um we have a tendency when we want to criticize things to label them nation building when we don't like them uh, and to call them something else when we do like them like temporary stabilization or reconstruction or whatever i do think If we define the task as taking a geographic location such as Afghanistan that had never had a sort of durable sense of shared identity amongst its many peoples, that had very little infrastructure, that had extremely corrupt authorities, et cetera, in a society like that, the notion that the United States or anybody is going to be able to kind of swoop in from the outside and, you know, in five or six years, turn it into something that it didn't resemble Switzerland, as somebody once said, at least sort of, you know, maybe kind of resembled Kosovo or something, right? Semi-functional. That clearly was delusional and always will be delusional. On the other hand, I think that the U.S.'s track record is mixed, but not uniformly horrible when it comes to shorter-term stabilization and reconstruction missions. Uh, including, you know, the, the Balkans being recent case studies uh, and, you know, in the more distant past, Japan and post-war Germany after World War II being further in history case studies. And obviously, you know, the difference in those societies is that they already had well-established infrastructures, et cetera. You weren't, you weren't sort of starting from scratch trying to make them resemble other states. Um, you know, they had serious, serious issues and problems, but there was a lot more to to work with in terms of local local resources across the board. I don't think we should conclude from Afghanistan that the U.S. should never get involved in trying to do anything and the military never has any role in any other country. But I do think we should conclude, and we've obviously talked about this before, maybe the civilian version of the power doctrine is not such a bad idea, you know, that, that you need the clear exit plan. You need an exit plan that is premised on the idea that you, whatever you think is necessary in an ideal world to do whatever it is you're trying to doing, that you will get approximately 10% of that. And whatever amount of time you think you need to do what you think you want to do, you will get approximately 10% of that. And so we should be asking ourselves a very different kind of question, which is, if we're here for, say, six months, what can we do with available resources that will make things slightly better than they are now when we leave in, say, six months? And if that's the kind of six-month plan you have, not the sort of, well, just give me some more troops in another six months, and we can just magically make all this perfect. You know, I, I think you can, I think, I think if you if your goals are suitably humble, it is not impossible to do some good. Um, it is not inevitable that you do some good, but it is not impossible to do some good. So I don't know, that's, that's, that's not exactly a resounding statement of the Brooks Doctrine, but best I can do.
1: Well, I'm glad to have the Brooks Doctrine and uh, look, i look forward to disseminating that via Deep State Radio. I do want to put in the uh, brief unpaid non-commercial announcement that I feel obligated to offer whenever these things come up in classes I'm teaching. And that is people are forbidden to use the term Marshall Plan because they will never have those conditions again. And the success of the Marshall Plan was contingent on the fact that we had just achieved total victory and could impose our will on these countries as we saw fit. That the countries that we were seeking to rebuild had actually been successful societies before we were rebuilding them. So we didn't have to do all of that. And that we were doing it because there was an existential threat on the other side of them from the Russians. And so we were willing to spend a huge amount of money on doing this. And that we were doing this, in fact, with other allies. Every time somebody brings up a Marshall Plan since then, Those conditions haven't existed.
0: I would add one more condition to your excellent panoply, David, which is we spent a couple of years training hundreds of civilian and military administrators to go to Europe after the war, administer the occupation, and make sure that the Marshall Plan landed successfully.
1: Right. Well, exactly. So let me shift briefly here. And one of the things that I, I noticed in the past few days that sort of passed under the radar was a statement by the aforementioned Secretary of State Blinken to the effect of, "If the Iranians don't get off the dime, we're just not going to go and do this deal anymore. That this, you know, this JCPOA, or as Rosa Brooks likes to refer to it, the POA, you know, we're just going to walk away from it." I'd like to posit a highly controversial statement. Which you can then all three respond to. And that is, while I hope that they do strike a deal, others may have a different view. This nuclear deal is overrated in its significance to the region. And in fact, the Iranian strategic threat is overrated in its significance. And that in fact, it's not in the Iranians' interest actually to have a nuclear weapon, they have more leverage. By almost having a nuclear weapon than having one. And as far as the United States is concerned, sort of the net effect of this is, is not as great as is generally stated. Ed, you may be the first to attack my statement, but I know it'll keep Corey around because she'll want to do that then next.
3: Yeah, I would love nothing more to, than to attack your statement, David, but I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. This deal. I think was a good deal when it was negotiated. It wasn't a perfect deal, but it was a good deal in 2015 when Obama negotiated it. And many of the people, of course, who did the negotiating, like Jake Sullivan, Wendy Sherman, are in the Biden senior people in the Biden administration. But things have um, moved on. The Iranians are considerably closer to a nuclear weapon. They've broken because the Americans withdrew under Trump. They've broken. A lot of the things they agreed to, they say, I think quite correctly, it was America that unilaterally withdrew from this deal, not uh, the United States. Biden has rejoined, but in the meantime, um, Iran has elected a new, far more radical president, Mullah, than um, than Rouhani um, was with whom the Obama administration negotiated. I don't think that this deal, I think over time it diminishes in value, and there's been quite a bit of time by now. Whether that means that you're correct, David, in saying Iran is an exaggerated threat. I don't know. I suppose it depends where you're sitting. Where I'm sitting, I don't feel the threat very much. But I guess if you're in the Gulf, um, if you're sitting there in Dubai or or you're in Tel Aviv, you might feel differently.
0: So I always supported the JCPOA because I thought the inspection provisions that had been negotiated with it, were a really important step forward to us understanding what was and wasn't happening in the Iranian nuclear programs. And so even though it didn't solve a whole bunch of other problems, that it was all for that reason alone worth signing, especially since by conclusion of all of the American intelligence agencies, Iran was abiding by it. It was bringing them under control. I think an Iranian nuclear weapon will persuade the Iranians that that they are impervious to attack, and that will make them more likely to continue behaving badly as they are in Iraq, in Lebanon, in other places. I agree with you, David, that Iran prosecuting a nuclear war is an overstated threat, Iran buying insurance against attack, conventional or nuclear by having possession of a nuclear weapon strikes me as a pretty significant gain in their position. And I would want it if I were them, which leads me to the final point, which was me gnashing my teeth in exasperation at the American government once again telling other people what their interests should be and saying, you know, what Iran should and shouldn't want. We ought to get out of that business. It's not a good look on us. Um, We ought to listen carefully to what they say they want. We ought to listen to what their neighbors are afraid of and try and help shield them. But I agree with Ed's point that it's a very different Middle East now than it was then. And our evident desire for departure from the problems of the Middle East has had the beneficial effect of Israel and the Gulf States and Egypt and others cooperating to better police Iran's behavior on all sorts of fronts, and that's actually uh, that's a pretty good outcome
1: It's true. I know Corey's going to slip off here in a second, but Rosa. How do you feel about Corey's near declaration there that she would like to have a nuclear weapon?
2: <laughs> well, I think, you know, the, as, as Heraclitus once said so famously, you, can, you can't step into the same Chicoa twice.
0: <laughs> Rosa, when I get my weapon, can I store it in your silo? Sure. We can um, have a dual key arrangement.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And if, if David and Ed are nice to us, we can make it a, a quadruple key. The flaw in your reasoning, David, is assuming that the Iranians are reasoning as your reasoning. That
1: wasn't reasoning. It was a question.
2: I mean, I mean, it seems to me that as we were discussing uh, in a recent podcast, there's always the wild card element of personality. Donald Trump reminded us that that it is not all just uh, vast impersonal forces or uh, unchanging state interests that make the difference in the world. It can also be particular crackpots suddenly change everything. Um one, our most recent experience with crackpot being Donald Trump. I think that we don't really know enough about the personalities of the top Iranian leaders at this point to know exactly what they would do. I think we, I also think that the U.S. quite consistently underestimates the power of nationalism and national pride as a motivator, you know, that, that it may very well be that, rationally speaking, from a, from a cold-hearted perspective, the Iranians are better off Almost with a nuclear weapon than actually having one, but I think from the perspective of domestic chest thumping purposes and national pride, it may not feel like that to them um so I, I i I don't know i think I think you're right that Iran is not as dangerous to us and our allies as the most hawkish think it is, but I'm also not quite ready to say, "Oh yeah, everything is fine, just leave them alone, and they will Cease to be a problem in the Middle East. I mean, clearly their ambitions in terms of regional control and hegemony are are significant. And they've demonstrated a capacity to monkey around with international trade routes, etc. So I I don't think that problem is going to go away.
1: No, but it's just a question of where it falls on the the scale of big problems that we face. So, you know, another dimension of all of this, though, is that the remaining part of the JCPOA Jikpoha negotiations will take place post-Afghanistan. And whatever one may say about Afghanistan, and you and I, as well as our colleagues have said differing things, the general perception is that in recent months, it hasn't gone well. And I think the Biden administration may be very cautious about anything that could be perceived as foreign policy misstep for a while what do you think the consequences of that may be
3: clearly and probably correctly biden is focusing you know on getting his big domestic the two big domestic bills through on social infrastructure and physical infrastructure and and that's more important to him and to his white house than than anything else and there are no easy wins in terms of foreign policy there's only constant gardening. Um, and I think there's probably some alliance repair that Blinken's going to be undertaking um, in the near future. Um, there are some sort of bruised egos across the Atlantic. But if you look at the JCPOA, uh, if you look at Jick Power, or if you look at sort of most other areas of the world where there is an American problem, you don't just have to, uh, or a challenge that America needs to deal with. You don't just need to be, you know, on the Korean Peninsula and Looking at potential missile tests there, then China and Russia are always part of the equation. And they are formally, of course, part of the Iran nuclear deal. And so none of these issues are siloed issues. I don't think staying in or withdrawing from Afghanistan is an issue, sort of in a vacuum that's unrelated to how China and, and Russia respond. And I think the same applies to the Iran nuclear deal. So would the Biden administration get a standing ovation for um re-entering jcp08 no i very much doubt it i suspect it might get the opposite it might be accused of being weak on a, a terrorist state etc it would probably get plaudits from its allies in europe germany france and britain are very keen that america re-enter this it's a fine calculation i i continue to think that the obvious and i think overriding foreign policy priority for biden is also a domestic one, and that is the pandemic. Um, and that is stepping up, whether it's through the Defense Production Act or whatever, stepping up the distribution of vaccines to the world.
1: That's an interesting and good suggestion. Somebody else might suggest focus on the southern border as, a, as it should be a priority here. Rosa, if you were sitting in a room right now with Joe Biden, and he said to you, what should I do? Where is the, where's the low-hanging fruit? I need some wins. What's a win?
2: It's not the way the world works, unfortunately. I don't think we have a world at the moment where there are really easy foreign policy big wins. I, I think that there are things that he could do that would be good things, including you know, one, thing, one issue that Corey has highlighted time and again is, is more focus on our own hemisphere. But I don't think that there is anything whatsoever out there that would be that would make the great American public with its three and a half second detention span go, oh, my goodness, what a wonderful thing. Short of, you know, somehow persuading China to have all of its leaders come to D.C. on their knees, begging forgiveness for any meddling and offering to let us take over the Chinese Communist Party. But I do think that's terribly likely.
1: I, no, I don't I don't think that that's terribly likely, but you don't think that if he. It seems to me like the most likely next move is going to come in discussions regarding climate and that they'll do more around climate. I think Ed's right. I think they may do more around vaccine but you just don't think those are terribly I don't resonant. Think,
2: I mean, if it was easy, they'd have done it already. I mean, I think that there are, again, you know, yes, on climate, is there more they can do? Is there more that they can do? Absolutely. You know, on vaccines, is there more we can do? Absolutely. But I don't think there's, I don't think that there is any low hanging fruit. I think all of the fruit out there is, is high up on shaky branches.
1: So, Ed, you know, what I would say if I was alone in a room with President Biden and he asked me those questions, besides, you know, he ought to talk to Ed Rosa and Corey and not me. Is focus on your domestic agenda and make it absolutely clear to everybody that it's a national security agenda. That rebuilding our infrastructure, that hardening the infrastructure, that protecting ourselves against cyber attacks, and uh, educating our people, and being able to compete better against China, and uh, grow faster, and uh, tap into the greater revenue sources that a fair tax system would bring, and combating climate change and and so on actually was a national security agenda and it's the one that's been neglected for the past 20 years admittedly he would probably then turn to me and say yeah that's exactly what we're doing but how do you feel about it
3: i think you, you'd be pushing it an open open door and i would agree with everything you have just said but i i would define the global pandemic um challenge not as low-hanging fruit because as rosa says nothing is really low-hanging fruit, but I don't think it's on the shakier upper branches. I think this is one of the more doable things if, if, there, if it's made a priority. And I think it could be actually part of what you've just said, David, which is this is in America's uh, interest. It's part of America's national security to defend, you know, this is a war on, on a pathogen, to defend Americans against a pathogen that will be mutating in parts of the world that are unvaccinated. And the IMF, as you know, David, and Roger, I'm sure, too, says it's a $50 billion cost to vaccinate 60% of the world by mid-2022. Now, that's less than, than Biden's proposing to spend on upgrading Amtrak. You know, this isn't like a big fiscal lift. It's to do with the Defense Production Act. It's to do with getting allies to step up because they're also equally, I think, anemic in this global priority. And I think it fits in exactly what you've just advised Biden to do. This isn't something extraneous.
1: I agree with you there. Well, you know, it's quite possible that Biden is sitting there listening to this right now. Well, on the treadmill, and uh, he is saying, Oh, well, once again, Corey, Rosa, and Ed are correct. And we should take their advice.
2: Once again, we are absolutely correct.
1: Absolutely correct. And he probably is going to go, you know, that's the way the deep state works. <laughs> is that we say it in this my these microphones here and it 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 comes out there. Well, folks, you know, stay tuned. Let's let's see if we've got this one right. I happen to think, by the way, that on this particular one, we probably do have this one right. But, you know, stay, listen to the episodes we've got coming in the future every week. Go to the DSRnetwork.com and while you're there, click on membership. Help support what we are doing so that we can provide you with more ways uh, to uh, understand this and investigate it. And uh, while you're out there, listen to what Ed is saying in particular, it's dangerous out there. This pandemic is far from over. So take care of yourselves, everybody. Bye-bye.